frequently the leader in the course of our work or after our work when going back to their day-to-day environment was stuck or stopped or constrained from actually becoming who they could be. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with thought leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your business. This is Aviv. And my guest for this conversation is Kathy Sunshine, founder and president of the Sunshine Group, a consulting and coaching firm specializing in family business, leadership transformation, and organization design. Guided by deep insight into organizational dynamics and throughput management, Kathy helps leaders, organizations, and families break through blockages, become agile and engaged, and produce turnaround growth. She helped hundreds of teams accelerate growth and improve performance. In this conversation, we explore why service structure works, how it changes problem solving, and how an organization can solve complexity by producing an alignment that creates flow. We also explore What is the inner work you must engage in to increase your effectiveness as a coach? There are ideas and tips here you will want to capture and apply. Let's get to my conversation with Kathy. Kathy, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Aviv, thank you so much for including me and inviting me. And I'm pleased that you didn't say that I was 104 years old in my introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Right. And, and just for clarity, you're not actually 104, <laughs> no. even though by experience and professional experience, perhaps you qualify uh, for, for that professional age. Oh, well, um, would that I had that wisdom, but I appreciate it. Now, I've been consulting now 40 years, which... I think is a good number in and of itself. So let me begin first and ask you, what are you working on at this time? Right now, I'm completing um, my first book. Um, I'm hoping to have it published by December. Um, and the book really showcases and brings to the public uh, my thinking on throughput and organization design called the service structure and how the two link together. You know, the environment has dramatically changed over the past five years, 10 years, certainly 40 years. Um, acceleration of change is stymieing most of us and complexity is, is everywhere. So it occurred to me that it's not enough for me to simply work client to client one at a time, but I've seen a convergence of thinking in my own way, my own application of thinking, and that's what made it more urgent for me to finish the book. Great. Well, first, congratulations. Thank you. For this uh, work and 
I get it that you're very close to the finish line, correct? Correct. Well, it began seven years ago, so now it's finally time to take it out. Great. So let's get back to some of the, the ideas in, in the book in, in a minute. What I'd like to first do is thread a little back and, and ask you, how did you get into coaching and consulting in the first place? And then come back through your various professional experiences into those key ideas that you frame and, and articulate in, in the book. So what do you trace your coaching and consulting experience to? What is the beginning point? You know, I think like most of us, it evolves. It isn't something I pointed to and said 40 years ago, I'm going to be a consultant. But I think it comes back to this theme where I'm just insatiably curious. From early childhood, I remember how curious I've been about, I've had this impulse to try and understand how something works and how it fits together. I remember as a nine-year-old going to my new school in third grade, which is sort of a tricky year because you want to have friends. And I remember sitting on the sidelines of the... Um, play area during recess and deciding that I'm just going to study how this thing works so maybe I can make friends. And I remember watching how what she did and what he did and how what they did and, and just watching how this whole system worked together to try and frankly figure out how to fit in. So that, that desire, um, curiosity, observation, now we would think of as systems thinking, you know, how does a system operate? But at the time, it was just me wanting to figure out how to make friends. But that hasn't left me, and it probably has been there as part of my life for a long, long time. I'm curious, and I'm a bit of a sleuth. So that's how consulting began. I began by coaching people around questions they had, and I seemed to be able to come up with observations that they hadn't seen before, perhaps because I was looking a bit broader. But that's, you know, it really came, back, came down and still comes down to curiosity and being open to having fewer and fewer judgments of my own so I can actually meet people with a wide open slate. Right. Well, What's striking in the way you describe this even early experience is that if I hear this correctly, this is you in a new setup and you are observing the environment, observing other people in the environment, in this case, children your age. And there is a part of you that observe you observing the system. And, uh, and, and I think that's a, a meta-level process that evolved in you much later in life in a much more conscious way. But it, it's striking because I've never heard you tell this story. And that's what uh, I hear and, and I mentally picture when you describe this setup. Am I getting this correctly? And, and how would you rephrase or restate what I just said? Well, I think you're right on. Um, and it's a funny, you know, people don't talk about observing ourselves as observers. But I think I knew many, many years ago 
how important it was, how I entered the picture. And I, I teach it even now that it's critical that if I have any feelings about a client or a situation where I'm actually there as a consultant or a coach to a system or a family, that it's critical for me not to have an opinion about it. Because if I have an opinion about it, then I'm going to enter the room in some ways a little tainted, not clear. So, um, yeah, for a long time, I've been very aware of awareness and paying attention to that because I think it's my responsibility. What happens then is that if I'm pretty clear, I end up asking questions that are very different and more provocative that really are in response to the client or the other person rather than in response to something I want to know. I'm not solving my own problem. I'm actually listening to their queries, their questions, their pain, their process, and allowing myself to find the questions through their questions and taking note of how to solve this problem, how to watch what works. It's critical that we know how we enter the room with the client. We understand if we have biases, what they are. And a bias can be excitement. It can be, oh, I really want to work with this client. I really like them. It's just, I, I like um, to hold myself to a place of being more transparent and invisible and empty would be a better word. Because then what I found is I seem to be more effective in listening to the client's needs and expectations and being a little more provocative um, or evocative in the questions that come to me. So I don't go into a client project with an assumption as to what I'm going to ask. Right. Well, so this is fascinating, and I, I just want to follow up from this and go with the flow of this conversation. And two questions. So first, why then is it so important to show up for the, the work with the client without biases, transparent, as you say? And that's question one. And question two, what then is the work, the inner work, that you must engage in and be generative with such that you are able to be on point, bias-free or bias-clear or at least as close as possible to it? Whoa, you're really taking us in a different direction, but let me see if I can answer it. The reason I think it's important, and I would say critically important for an effective a coach or consulting engagement, particularly when you're working in very complex systems like organizations or families or businesses of any size, I believe it's important to go in open so that we don't have assumptions that can drive the intervention in one or another direction. Because I think when we have assumptions, and I think it's almost, it's difficult, if not impossible, as human beings not to walk in with certain assumptions. Mm. 
but the more open and calm and without intention we are, intention simply being to help them grow, I think the more effective we are. I've had meetings with clients where I remember, I mean, I, I have an assistant who will come with me in a sort of a strategy session, let's assume. And the best meetings I've ever had are meetings where I cannot actually pinpoint what happened in the meeting. That it's, I actually gain feedback afterwards as to what was the most impactful. Because I want their conversation to drive my thinking and my facilitation. But that goes in a whole different direction, Aviv. Yes. Um, if, if we go back to inner work, honestly, I just hold myself to being authentic in the way I feel. Right. Which is painful, actually, sometimes. How so? Well, if I'm triggered by one or another person, I have to look at that as my trigger and where is that coming from? And that informs the decisions I make about how I approach the client, whether I can work with that client or not. I mean, we're, we're human beings. But it, f- most of the time when I feel an emotion, it's something for me to learn, nothing about them. Right. So my inner work becomes very stimulated by I wonder what that was about. And I have my own methods for helping to analyze that and release it. Yes. Yes. Well, let, let's speak. The, this is fascinating because the, the big message in what you just shared there and, and put the magnifying glass on, to me says the following, which is that we can never assume that we can walk into a client situation and work with a client, period. We are always, always, always also working inside ourselves such that we are a better tool, as, as accurate, as in the moment a vessel that facilitate and enable the the best outcomes for the client. We cannot assume that we will work on the client period without concurrently working on ourselves to bring ourselves to to the point as the best instrument that we can be. Absolutely. And I think the instrument, and this is actually a bit of a segue into the way I think, I think the instrument has to be able to be a channel of sorts for information for facilitation and for clarity for the client. And if that, if we're um, clogged up, if we have constraints, if we have opinions, if we have expectations, if we have needs, we will taint it. You know, I think the, the greatest compliment I ever had uh, from a client, a woman named Laura, and this was probably 30 years ago, was that she thought that in the work I did, I was like a seamless mirror. And boy, I just loved that compliment because I, I, I was taken visually to that picture of the mirrors, those funny mirrors in the surface that are bent. Yes. And how when you look at it, what comes back is a fat bottom and a skinny top or a strange looking head. And that, that she would have said that I was a seamless mirror to me was a magnificent 
tribute to the work that I did in that case with her. And it's the standard I like to hold myself to. So you said two different things there. In one part of you, you, you use the term a channel that filters insights and know-how and intelligence about the system you're in. And in the other part, you are a mirror, right? There is no cognitive dissonance or contradiction, though these are two different, metaphor, two different metaphors. They, they both work concurrently and highlight a different aspect of the work, correct? It's true. It's true. It was two very different metaphors, but I'm saying the same thing. Yes. So uh, let's try to pick then the, the thread um, from early awareness. What, what is the entry that you make into coaching and consulting? And, and how do you, at what point do you tell yourself, yeah, I am, I am a coach, I am a consultant, that's the work I'm doing it. At what point it becomes a professional arena that, that you focus on? Not sure I'm answering your question, but I'm drawn to go back to this book that I'm writing and the work that I've done um, and the concept of throughput and structure and why structure is important. Because I actually believe, so think about the mirror. The mirror is a hard structure, but it facilitates a reflection a smoothness, ideally, accurately, um, particularly if it's seamless. But um, what I've seen with the thousands of people that I've coached, here's what would happen. If I were extremely effective in coaching a business leader, the leader would feel more empowered, more clear, um, a sense of self, higher sense of self and stability, and they, um, in turn, were then able to contribute back to their organizations in much more humble but effective ways. And I learned, because I like solving problems, that frequently the leader in the course of our work or after our work, when going back to their day-to-day environment, was stuck or stopped or constrained from actually becoming who they could be. Mm. And it was painful, actually. Um, One of my pet peeves is creating dependency with a client, and I want them to be able to go succeed. And I kept experiencing, and I started watching myself, again, watching myself hold back from the work I was doing with an individual until I understood their organization because I didn't want them all dressed up with nowhere to go. I learned that they could actually finish our work feeling stronger and more effective and more powerful and then actually become depressed, which did happen, after they returned to work, finding that the environment, the container that they were operating in was actually restricting them. So um, I set about, because I'm like this sleuth, to sort of create a new design for business. Um, But one that was able to grow with the leader and where the leader could actually help impact the growth of the company. The 
the book that I have now sort of is in response to the world we live in now. I mean, we live in, the environment has so dramatically changed. The complexity, the acceleration of change. Um, and I, because I'm a management consultant and I've done years and years of strategic business planning, have certainly used management theory from 30 years ago very effectively. But I believe that the management thinking that we have developed very effectively and very efficiently to today is no longer relevant. That we've actually think in vertical terms, if I can use that, meaning efficiency, effectiveness, rather than in horizontal terms, which have to do with a framework that is not static but dynamic. So that the system of the organization isn't as inflamed or stuck, but enables leaders to actually perform. Right. And, you know, for the past 20 years, I've been developed and used this service structure. And I'm scratching my head saying, gee, how come this thing keeps working? And it keeps working. It works because the way that the service structure operates is that it's really channeling the behavior of people inside a company to the customer. And it changes entirely the problem-solving methods we've used in the past. So when I'm talking about channeling or providing movement, or um, it, it's really a reframing of the way we think about how to design organizations so they flow. The first fascinating comment in terms of your own evolution is that you used to coach individuals and leaders and you discovered that they came out of those coaching engagements with a sense of progress and, and clarity, and they, they were released and evolved in their vision of themselves and what they were going to do. But time and again, they found themselves in a system that was stuck, and the, there was a gap between the inner growth and inner development to where the system was, and, and that essentially what set you uh, up on, on the journey of resolving and solving that problem, the system problem, the structure problem. And what's fascinating just about that part is it was an organic evolution, pro evolutionary process for you that then brought you to, okay, so how do I help companies, families, family business, solve their problems and solve their problems in a way that's sustainable and in a way that could then heal itself, remedy itself over a period of time. You wanted to give them a set of tools that they will become sufficient in their own self-healing and self-direction in their strategy and, and business success. Right. I'll add one more piece. At the same time, I was consulting with organizations. So I wasn't just coaching. I've been doing strategic business planning and consulting work at the same time concurrently with any coaching, sometimes within, sometimes without. But I've always been working within an organizational system as well. So when I was this, this 
service structure men mentality, the service structure design, actually became a distinctive part of my strategic business planning. So I was working with organizations in um, understanding their current reality, their vision, and their strategies, and I would insert a structural element in it, which actually enabled them to perform. You know, there are many books today telling us what we need to do to deal with the complexity, to deal with change, to deal with this flat, global, technological environment. But I, uh, what service structure does is actually teaches an organization how to do it. It's actually a very pragmatic and practical way of designing themselves so they actually can implement the strategies, execute on them. So if, you, so if you need to explain in a simpler way what a service structure is, how do you, how do you explain that? What is the, the narrative, the story that frames what um, is a service structure? The service structure is actually, it does not take the place of an organization structure. It's important to know. But the service structure stands on three pillars. And the first one is relevance. Because, so if I'm simply describing the service structure, it's a construct that aligns all of the internal departments of a company to the external customer, but in an integrated way. So the three pillars are relevance, alignment, and buoyancy. In a service structure, the most important pillar, this one called relevance, has identified the external customer, what you might think of as market segmentation. It brings the marketing department into the core. Because in a service structure environment, you're actually tethered or anchored to the outside, not the inside. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in a service structure, we identify the market segmentation, and there may be many, many customers. There may be a half a dozen. But we segment it based on their expectations of the company. Once we know that, Basically, I redesign the departments in alignment with that customer so that the internal accountability, that's the second pillar is alignment. All of the departments become linked to each other in coherent alignment with that external market segment. And then buoyancy is how quickly it can respond to that customers at the speed of need. So the service structure becomes a horizontal environment, um, ideally with fewest constraints, linking the external customer needs with the actual implementation or execution on the inside. It changes the departmental accountabilities so that departments are accountable to a single customer, either on the inside or the outside. So the service structure is a cohesive design that reorients the functions of a company to the external customer. So it, it sounds like there is the design and alignment 
phase of the work. And, and then there is the implementation where there is a whole new muscle memory that the entire system, the entire organization need to learn to embrace and bring to life. The, the critical component of shifting that culture, because you're right, we're building a new muscle memory and actually we're changing the culture of an organization. And I've done this with very large organizations and very small ones. But in the course of doing it, the leadership commitment to this way of thinking, because it becomes more servant leadership-like, becomes key. And um, the reinforcement of that changes the behaviors sufficiently, but comfortably. People think, you know, they get scared of restructuring. In a service structure environment, it's so logical that the muscle memory almost goes back to knowing this is the right way to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. I actually think we're very conflicted today, the way we've designed our organizations. I mean, old management theory has taught us to problem solve well, but we're solving to um, more minute problems. We're solving to symptoms rather than to the entire construct or system that's required to move fast enough in this environment. Can you add to this picture you're painting your usage of the idea of throughput management and, and flow? How do they play a part in this design? Well, I mean, this word throughput came to me in an epiphany one night because I realized, why am I doing all this? I guess maybe I'm self-observing again, which you were so insightful to tell me. I won't be able to let that one go. But... Um, the question in my mind is, so why does this work? What, what's working about this service structure? I know it's logical. I know nobody really resists it. It's easy to do, but it's complex to implement. But why does it work? And I realized that the way that I think has everything to do with the removal of constraints, not so much solving problems. So if I know why I do things, or if my company understands its relevance, meaning I am unique in this market because I provide these things, then the real question is how do I provide it smoothly and more quickly? What's the construct? What's the infrastructure? What's the design of my business that either enables flow or throughput of services or restricts it? And what service structure does is it removes those walls, the vertical walls, but it causes us to think horizontally. I like to use an example of, um, you know, we, the healthcare industry. You know, we, we, we have built our um, system of healthcare on the assumption that if we re reduce disease states, then we increase longevity. Mm -hmm. But the statistics haven't proven that to be true. Even the, all of the, the medicines that we have to cure, cure this kind of cancer or that kind of cancer or um, different diseases, we, we're set up to solve the disease problem. But we now have researchers that are pretty excited about the fact that they're not focused so much on individual diseases, but they're solving a problem of longevity. 
So, so these researchers said, well, if we just shift our focus and start seeing how can we live longer, they began to realize that there are ways in which we can focus on longevity, which is I call that horizontal problem solving. And by doing so, preclude diseases from occurring in the first place. But we have a whole infrastructure set up to look at vertical problem solving. Well, in organizations today, that's how we're, we're built. We are invested in the disease. Correct. And the industries that were constructed around the disease, rather than invested in the, the life, the longevity, and the healthy part of the system. Uh, that's the metaphor that you are using here. And it is absolutely relevant to, yeah. to the, the company and the corporate arena. You know, the, the cancer, I just heard uh, last week that um, those who have been focused on um, curing cancer have just come to a realization that they've been focused on their body part, cancer of the breast, cancer of the groin, cancer of the heart. And now they've begun to shift on looking at cancer as the type of cancer it is, not the body part. Well, that's the difference between vertical problem solving and horizontal. And they're finding that they can solve all kinds of different cancers looking at the type of cancer, not the body part. Mm. It's a different way of thinking and a different focus, but it is transformative for organizations. Can you give and share a concrete example, either from recent times or from any time, where you applied this process to help teams create breakthrough and break through the legacy uh, bottlenecks and get things moving again. It, it, what example would paint this in even more vivid and fuller way? Well, when you think about throughput management, it's both a way of thinking and something that you actually do. So I'll give you two examples that are really different, but both relate to this way of thinking. One is the National Association of Realtors, and I can use their name because this was a report and there are 200 people in their board, and the board wanted to study, the board had, the National Association of Realtors has two headquarter locations. One is in Washington, D.C., one is in Chicago. It's a really effective organization. This was 10, 15 years ago, and the board had been asking for years why do we have two headquarter locations? Why don't we merge them? We can save money. We can get um, um, much more leverage out of our employees. We can be more focused. It's just more efficient. And I was um, pleased to be awarded a grant, a contract to help them analyze that. Well, I'm not a financial real estate person, but I brought on my real estate folks and I brought on my financial folks and I did a component called strategy. So what we discovered, which wasn't a surprise, is we'd get more economies of scale by merging the physical locations. And we looked at, should we sell Chicago or sell Washington, D.C. to get these economies of scale? So we discovered that financial and real estate question. 
we looked at the um, employee base and would it be less expensive to have employees in Chicago or Washington? So we did that human resource study. When it came to strategy, I asked a different question and that was, what do you do for a living? Who do you serve? Who is your primary customer? And in doing so, we were able to tease out the critical importance of having two locations. Because in Washington, D.C., they provide lobbying and expertise for the homeowner, whether you're a realtor or not. Their primary customer is those of us who own homes, are those of us, mm-hmm. the primary customer. From a Chicago standpoint, their primary customer is the realtor. They provide testing and evaluation and sanctioning and resources for them to entirely different customers. Were we to merge those locations because of real estate and financial considerations, it probably would have slowed down the effectiveness and growth. In fact, I would probably guarantee it would of the National Association of Realtors. So they were insightful enough to not only see that, but choose to keep the locations where they are. That's a service structure discussion. Now, if I shift to another company that was draining money, a technology company, they've been losing money for years, they brought in a new CEO who brought me in, we did strategic work, and I really initiated a service structure. This is a company that had fiefdoms, the field didn't get along with corporate, um, the leaders had been compartmentalized and the functions were really very possessive, internal. And within a nine month period using service structure, it entirely shifted the way of thinking to an external anchor the company grew 1,300% in, I think, three years and turned themselves into um, award-winning national technology company in a very short period of time, all because of services. But that's the power of thinking in an entirely different way. All because this process, the new way of thinking, the new way of working, the, the new alignment in essence, helped those systems free up yeah. and release the, the creative and, and productive capacities. One of the things that, that I find increasingly that I say to, to teams is that I get to sit with very smart people around the table in some of the most admired companies in the world, and more often than not, perhaps in 70 or 80% of those situations, I find the teams are only using or applying perhaps 40, perhaps 50% of the productive and creative capacity. So much in the system is stuck. It begins with how they structure the conversations or how they don't even listen to each other in a very effective way. That's why in, in the work that I do to help teams create a new future for themselves as an organization and as a business, it begins with the structure of the conversation. What you're painting is that it has to include and encompass the entirety of the the structure and, and the organizational 
design and structure such that there is flow, such that there is throughput, all anchored on the relevance and the purpose of why this organization or company is in place in the first place. Absolutely. You know, I, when, I, when I talk about structure, Aviv, I talk about how we think and what we do. And what you're talking about is, the, is when we have conversations, they are outputs of how we think. And I think structure is just critical. I mean, I, I, I think about these pillars, if you will, but I really believe, um, I think we have terrific leaders. I work like you do with wonderful, skilled, bright insightful leaders. And it's such a joy to be able to, I don't think we need a lot of leadership training, at least not in the organizations I'm working in. <laughs> but, but I notice what is it that is so difficult for them to execute and perform. And over and over again, I go back to structure and how the container exists to enable them to keep growing. Um, you know, Right now, there are two, there are problems that this solves. One of which is old management theory is old and it's vertical. And the, but the other is that we live in such a complex environment that, and how people, how human be, beings deal with this complexity is, is, is important because one of the problems this solves is with all the complexity, people get paralyzed and they end up because they're afraid they can't sort of make their way through the complexity, the change. They actually begin to solve smaller and smaller problems. Like yes. you were saying, the yes. brain takes us to sort of deconstruct so we can get a handle on it. And we feel like we're more in control. And they try to deconstruct it, and they get paralyzed and exhausted. I mean, you look, you ask people in any reasonable size company, they'll tell you they're tired. Yes. And I believe it's because they're ending up what I call polishing an exquisite maze. <laughs> you know, they're in their little place solving the problems they've been taught to solve, but really pressured by this complexity. And in deconstructing themselves they become more introspective. I think you mentioned this earlier and self-serving. And then, and so they're not even looking at their integration of these departments. So both the system as a whole and the units in the system get separated from the reason they exist from that customer. So the way you help them address complexity is through integration. Well, it's through re-anchoring on purpose, which is right. that customer outside of themselves. You know, it's such a paradox because the customer is the one changing. The external environment is the scary part. And what I'm saying is we actually have to connect more with that scary part to get our stability. People are looking to become more stable internally. And it's impossible. It actually makes us more stuck. How fascinating. It, it's almost as though we need to work against the, the reflex, the instinct of wanting exactly. to stabilize and, and focus inwardly. So one of the first things that you have to do is you have to 
give them new language because even when you say structure right. and you talk about how important structure is, you mean something very different than that slide with boxes that define <laughs> the, the organizational structure. You're talking about something very different and you have to re-educate people about what you mean when you say structure and essentially begin by giving them new language. I think you're right. And in fact, in the book, I'm, I really have to begin with defining what I mean, that, <clears throat> we're, that structure is more um, a construct, but to use the word framework softens it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're looking at can structure establish the through line that enables people to see through the complexity because structure is seen as static and we want to move structure to something that is now dynamic and reflexive and responsive. And that is absolutely a paradox and it's brand new management thinking. It's very different. You're saying to enable flow, to enable movement, to enable throughput, we must solve to the structure to solve the structure, we must solve to the purpose we're here to serve. Exactly. The three key elements I talk about are, first and foremost, that structure, the way I define it, actually the way we all define it, institutionalizes behavior. That we can be very effective, but the design, the house we live in, the way we structure our families, the way we structure our thinking, and the way we structure our organizations will institutionalize the behavior. So we want to institutionalize it to the behavior we want and need. That's number one. Number two is throughput is key. We have to measure to movement. We have to look at how we're directing things so that we can be responsive and reflective. And the third is this paradox that control comes from the outside, not the inside. So those are the three levers that I speak of frequently, but they're very different ways of thinking. I know that another big part of the way your practice evolved through the years is that you found yourself often working with family business and that, that this was and has been and, and still is a, a rich and, and fertile space to practice these ideas and to apply them because family dynamics and family businesses sometimes make for an even more deliciously complex uh, <laughs> setup. But can you talk to this in either a general sense or is there an example, a case in point that you can talk to that, uh, because not everybody listening to, to this uh, directly have the kind of experience that you have with family business. How would you describe that part of the work? Uh, families are complex entities because we all have them. We know that. <laughs> so the family in and of itself. But if I just look at a family unit, we can also ask the question, who do you serve? When we take a family that also has a business or what we frequently call an enterprise, because it could be that a family doesn't actually own an operating company, but they may 
some family members, maybe partners in um, a real estate venture, in different ventures. So there are frequently families that are engaged in other activities without all family members, not for the sake of the family. And then we overlay that with um, the complexity of ownership. Some families own, some families don't. And um, in the work of family business, it's, it's also very important to see both the three entities, the identities of people separate, and then as they overlap. So uh, again, we're still operating based on the importance of movement or growth. So for a family, frequently the challenge is make sure that we don't, that our conflicts don't split us apart. Um, We want to be able to build a stable platform for this generation and the next and the next. And in that case, the customer, if you will, becomes the next generation. And the structure becomes the platform of who is this family, what are its values, and how does it want to operate for the goodness of the future and growth of the family? So there are questions to be asked just of the family system. Mm-hmm. Frequently, when, I, when I'm called on to do work with a family, it's not always, but frequently it's there's some conflict or there's some split or there's some dilemma that they're facing around ownership or succession. And so the family unit in and of itself becomes a complex system. If you then look over to the business side as a separate entity, we can answer those same questions. Who's your customer? What do they need and expect? And how do we operate there? But there are added questions, which is, how do the two cousins relate to each other and relate to the non-family management in that company? Because these cousins, I made that up, are wearing a different hat. They're family members representing a family, but in a company where they get a salary and they may or may not be owners. That makes that system a little more complex. But we're still looking at, in the company side, that business to stay relevant has to have a clear alignment with its customer. So do you find that as you consult and work with a family business that you are also, in in many ways, a a therapist to the family, or, or you would not state it in this way? Well, since I'm not a clinician, there mm-hmm. are times when I'll bring in clinical um, folks to work with me or work with them. Um, but I, I, I'm more of a behaviorist. I am looking at the human behaviors and how they interact within that system. And in doing so, quite frequently, we can resolve many of the perceived conflicts um, because frequently, if not always, the participants aren't seeing themselves in the larger system or understanding or have a voice to look at what is it that I want, Uh, respecting themselves as individuals as well as family members. All of those component parts become important in then 
reconstructing the family and, and making sure everybody wants the same thing, that they still have, they have the same, if you will, customer. Yes. Let me ask you two questions at this point and, and see how you weave your thoughts in response. The first is, what is the moment that you look forward to in a project work? It, it may be a family business, as we've just spoken about, or it, it may be a larger enterprise. What is the moment that you look forward to where you know that the work perhaps has reached a, a, a pivotal point? But I don't want to get, define the answer. You, you may describe a whole other moment in the work. So that's question one. And, and question two, right next to it, which part of the work you do, you, do you enjoy the most? You know, it may be the same answer. Okay. Um, most of the time when I'm working with a company, even when I'm facilitating strategic planning, there's some level of anxiety. I'm facilitating. I'm facilitating an alignment of decisions and thinking and relationships. Um, the moment that, the reason I do this work, <laughs> it's not just the moment, the reason I do this work is when I watch the anxiety, when I, when I see awareness on the faces of the people with whom I'm working. And it's almost like there's a breath of fresh air. It's like an, I call it an aha experience when all of a sudden individually or collectively they breathe a sigh of relief because there's a sense of, oh, shoot, I never saw it that way. The moment of insight that occurs, when that occurs, I know they will never be the same in mm -hmm. a good way. Mm -hmm. When there's a, ah, aha, I didn't ever see it that way. I believe that insight or accurate awareness of the reality begets change. No matter what happens next, obviously I'd like to guide that or help them create a vision for it. But it's in the moment where something changes in the energetic field or on the faces of the people there, and I know they're different. They can't go back. Yes. That I love. And that's what I enjoy the most. I think that's why I do what I do is I'm pretty good at working in complex, complex environments and identifying ways through it for a group of people so they feel less anxious and they can move. This is about movement, throughput. It's about constraints that are in people's minds, in their hearts, in their experiences, but also in the way they've designed their world. You live to create and choreograph those experiences where people become aware and gain new insights and experience these breakthroughs that enable them in their professional life and also in their personal life to move with freedom and ease at, at a whole new level. And uh, as a result, 
create outcomes and produce results that they could not before. That, that is how I experience what you're describing. It's exactly how I feel. And ironically, Aviv, I tell people sometimes that remember this moment because when we're finished, you may not know that you didn't know it. I want it to happen with ease and with comfort and with an assumption that it's just the most natural part of change. It's what I often find is but, but, but I've, got, I've gotten to the point where I want to say, now remember this conflict right now, remember this issue you have. Okay, we're going to come back to that in about two months. Right, so you are raising here the, this other dilemma of the, the facilitator, the, the coach, the consultant, the magician, whatever the, <laughs> the word is, that enable points of, and moments of, of breakthrough, which is when people gain a new insight. Perhaps it's like there is somebody flipped the switch and there is light in that room. How do you sustain that breakthrough realization and insight without it being diluted by then the, the broader, greater light that fills that room? That's an interesting That's developmental great. challenge. And ultimately for people to sustain it, they will have to develop where we started this conversation, that meta-level awareness, which is they will be concurrently aware to the process, the system, to their experience, and also aware at, at another altitude of their own awareness and how that awareness feels different and works differently in and through them. And they need to, to have the, the curiosity to codify that experience in some way such that it is traceable and they can harvest it to moments in the future. You ultimately uh, are trying to impart and transfer that experience to them such that they will then be able to do it for themselves when they face new challenges in the future. In other words, instead of just solving a problem or releasing a blockage, for them to gain the, the operating system that enabled the breakthroughs so that they can in the future facilitate themselves and other people in their ecosystem to do the same. That's a tall order and, <laughs> and requires people that would be interested and open to engage with your process at that level, and yet it can be done. It can be done. Absolutely. Um, you're articulating something that you know is so complex and has so many parts. And as you were describing it, I was bringing it back to the dilemma for the consultant. Because for the consultant, again, to remain that seamless mirror, it's also important to smile and let it go. Explain more what you mean by smile and let when, it go. When, when there's reached this awareness or insight level for others, what you were talking about is enabling the light to really expand and magnify, you know, their insight can take them somewhere. I want to say two different things. Let me, let me go to the client 
the most beautiful part of strategic planning is that you can actually build a framework for them to sustain this new level of thinking. Because now you can revisit the vision and the values they want and help them establish a framework with service structure that enables them to grow. For the consultant, there's a letting go. There's a joy in watching. There's a joy in participating in the breakthroughs. There's a humbleness that comes with knowing whether they know where it came from or not. They will move. And so at this one time, there's a helpful framework that we can do. And there's another time that we ourselves must change and smile and let them go and bless it to take on its own journey. And that does take us back to the very beginning of our conversation around the work we have to do. Yeah, it occurs to me that part of what you're describing is is also um, an element of parenting in in many yeah. ways. And in the consulting context, I think what you're describing is that holding your space intactly and at peace is a necessary condition to also create and make the space for the client to own their space and take full responsibility to their leadership of themselves in their space. It's a really good metaphor of, that you're using now of parenting because it's the point of individuation. It's the point where the children kick off from the side of the pool and move on their own. And I'm not meaning to demean these brilliant leaders of companies at all, but there is a metaphor there that I I would agree with. Yes. Well, Kathy, time flies. And as in all our many conversations over the years, we go on a tangent and we continue to explore it and it leads to to new tributaries of, of appreciation and understanding, and, and here we are, we, we do need to approach uh, lending. So two questions as we come to close. First, with what you know today, if you were to advise yourself again, imagine that you are again in, in your mid-20s, approaching life, approaching professional life, what advice would you give? What I did unconsciously was just take each client at a time and the referral went to referral. I think what I would advise myself is just to relax and enjoy the journey. Perhaps to be willing to expose my thinking and writing earlier, not keeping it such a comfort level, private, secret because I've been very happy in the consulting, but the writing itself is, um, is, feels exposing and new and stimulating. I'm not sure that I would do it, but I think my advice would be to allow myself to be exposed 
Yes. In essence, you give yourself the, the very same medication <laughs> that, that you advise to, to people in, in facilitating movement. Exactly. Rather than holding back. Yes. So, so with this, and, uh, with this uh, rich exploration, as we bring this to lending, what parting wisdom would you offer to people listening to create new futures? First of all, thank you, Aviv, for the opportunity. It was a fun, relaxing conversation, um, and it did take us on our usual tangents, which I guess shouldn't surprise me. My advice would be to challenge ourselves to look in terms of movement, to look at why we're doing something, who we are, and who we're there to serve. And you could take it to a spiritual level, but now I'm thinking in terms of families, our own desires, um, and look at what may be in the way. So if you think more in terms of who I am, what am I doing here? What do I want? And then how do I facilitate movement to that end? What are the constraints to my achieving that? Um, I would just remain curious, focusing on constraints to movement rather than on simple problem solving. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This could easily be a launching pad for a whole other conversation, especially as you mentioned the spiritual and, and purpose dimension of that, perhaps to be picked up and taken up an, another time. Thank you so very much uh, for sharing these thoughts. And uh, as soon as the book is out, is there a working title for, for the book that you can share? The working title is Throughput, The Structure of Flow. Throughput, The Structure of, of flow. flow. And I'm hoping it will be confusing enough and paradoxical enough to cause people to be curious. <laughs> But thank you very, very much, Aviv, for the opportunity. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, observe yourself. See how you enter the picture. Practice being free of opinions and disarm judgment. Enter the arena clear, calm and centered. Second, identify and focus on the people you serve. Be open. Become a clear mirror. Let their need fashion your inquiry and and inform your approach. Third, pivot from solving smaller and smaller problems to putting in place structures that enable movement. Discover your higher sense of self not in your diplomas, titles, and or medals, but in what you make possible and how you facilitate flow. One more thing, you can reach me directly by phone and on email To explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.